Welcome to the We Go Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads who share with us the story of the journey to their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Andy Georgiev, class of 2022. Today, I catch up with Josue Manny Munoz, class of 2014, a mindful media maker and educator. Manny will share with us how his work in media fosters connection, educates communities, and reinvigorates our shared humanity as his work has spanned the Smithsonian Latino Center and through the LA Neighborhood Land Trust. Be sure to check out his webpage at otway.media or Otway Media to learn more about his exciting work. Joining us from the class of 2014 is Manny Munoz. Manny, what do you do? <laughs> That's a loaded question. Um, I, I, I like to break it down as a um, transmedia storyteller and a mindful media educator. Um, so that, that breaks down in a few different ways. Uh, to pay the bills, uh, the transmedia storyteller side which is really just telling story through various media and through this like digital interrelationship between mediums and, and social media platforms. So long story short, I am a social media coordinator for a nonprofit out here in Los Angeles where I was based in for five years and I recently moved to the Inland Empire uh, in San Bernardino County. Um, I also... As a remote worker, uh, I've been working on now my third video series with the National Museum of the American Latino, which is part of the Smithsonian Institution. And um, yeah, I'm also a writer, uh, a poet, um, a screenwriter, and I'm working on a kind of mindful media memoir. And that's my big project for 2023. But as far as mindful media educator goes, um, when the pandemic kind of picked up and it became clear that digital, whether it's screen time or hybrid learning, it was very clear that digital technology is going to be an increasingly, it's a bigger and bigger part of our life as, as the years pass. So I was just interested in Ah, integrating some breaths and some mindfulness techniques into my daily routines and creating ways to share that with others. So the next big opportunity I have coming up is in March, where I'll be doing a community action fellowship in the Cuyama Valley, uh, a few hours north of Los Angeles, where I'll spend a week getting to know the community, working with their public school, um, and then creating a project with them for the remainder of the fellowship to 
address some of those issues or concerns that the community uh, spoke of and create a kind of mindful media project from it. This sounds really interesting that you have been able to uh, land in a very significant storyteller position uh, that you're in. But you've always kind of had, uh, even from your your time back in WeGo, been able to kind of also position yourself to be kind of a storyteller in that you are an actor uh, and so heavily involved in the drama program here at school. I was wondering if maybe you could, uh, if we could rewind a little bit. What did you do once you left WeGo, and and then and then let's kind of trace it back to then uh, how you then found yourself into uniquely more of these kind of digital mediums. Yeah, I I left. We go uh, very much a thespian, uh, and I'm very grateful for everything uh, I learned in We Go Drama because it definitely, in so many ways, gave me a leg up uh, with with a my understanding and my relationship with storytelling because acting very much is an embodiment of the story. When you're on this stage, you have a very clear sense of, am I at the beginning of this character's journey? And And if I'm at the beginning, what kind of evolution and growth am I going to undergo over the next hour, hour and a half, two hours to, to take the audience on a ride, right? And yet in theater, there's a very clear relationship with an audience because you're performing with a group of people. And I was ready or excited to transition into film uh, and kind of put on a filmmaker hat. And I felt as though that required me to take off the actor and thespian hat. And um, I went to Syracuse University, where I studied television, radio, and film at the Newhouse School of Public Communications. And I learned a lot. Uh, I also unlearned a lot of what made me me. And it then kind of became this roller coaster of mm, peeling layers off, putting some back on, and slowly but surely uncovering the artist that I've always been. And Yet, my school was very business-oriented, and I was looking, I guess, to do something a little bit more. Some of my classes were teaching me the tricks that Facebook, YouTube, Netflix were using to take away sleep and grab our attention as best as they could. And I realized, while I was looking around at my peers taking notes at how they could better manipulate the masses... (laughs) <laughs> that I wanted to find a different a different way to use this well, almost media literacy 101 to to give back and and that's kind of how I found myself in the nonprofit space when it comes to media I I felt that filmmaking took a little too long for what the kind of storytelling I wanted to do and so I thought maybe social media would be it and after working at a nonprofit during the 2020 or just before the 2020 campaigns, during the 2020 uh, campaigns, um, I just found myself very stressed, depressed um, in the social media space. I found out it moves a little bit too fast and um, it wasn't the best for my mental health. So I kind of took a step back and then started freelancing right as COVID picked up um, so I ended up at a different nonprofit called the LA Neighborhood Land Trust that essentially works together with community uh, and other larger entities 
that can help with funding to buy empty lots and transform them into parks and community gardens. And so I've been helping them with uh, their social media presence since the pandemic started. And that's opened a few other doors. And I've just, yeah, I've been taking it a step at a time. That sounds incredibly rewarding. Uh, could you maybe just uh, talk about that? Um, that like what was like one of your more successful uh, uh, projects that you did for that particular campaign? Um, so that uh, nonprofit opened uh, joined a coalition uh, called the LA Living Schoolyards Coalition, and. Essentially, it required me to build a social media presence from the ground up um, in preparation for a big convening that was going to bring experts from the area, um, various nonprofits, and essentially bring LA Unified School District to the table and essentially bring forward all this research, uh, acknowledging the importance of, of living schoolyards, of greenifying school campuses especially in Southern California, where those August, September months and even, you know, uh, April, May, June can get really, really hot. The concrete and asphalt become almost deadly and just not a fun place to play. Uh, You fall on the concrete and you're burning yourself pretty bad. So, yeah, I've had the chance to work with... uh, a leading expert out here by the name of Claire Latane. Uh, that's definitely not how you pronounce her name, but um, I've learned a lot about the importance uh, when it comes to mental health, when it comes to overall staff and, and children well-being, student well-being. Um, when you make these slight subtle changes to the atmosphere that we call school, that we call home. And um, yeah, the, the convening went really well immediately after there was like a big wave of support and funding to projects like uh, Esperanza Elementary School, um, which has over the past five years with the leadership of a of a really bold and brave uh, principal and just very friendly guy has been growing this like natural ecosystem on the school campus that has brought even an owl that's kind of now a resident of the school. So, yeah, slowly but surely you see one project, one campus at a time, these, like, powerful changes happening to places that often don't have a local park, that don't have greenery for over a mile. And when you can have it on your school campus, it really makes a difference. It's interesting because uh, a few minutes ago you were talking about how you were sitting in Syracuse and you were listening to how algorithms were monetizing narratives mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. such a way, and that drills down on you in a, as an atomized consumer, mm-hmm. and yet you went the other way, and you have used your storytelling to do the opposite, which is bring people together for these incredible projects where there's such a flowering of networking, as you said, really mm-hmm. an ecosystem uh, of sorts. Was that was that a, a conscious kind of pushback on, on what that, because you had mentioned that before. I mean, were you saying like, no, I'm definitely going to take this in another direction, or did it kind of just happen unconsciously as you were pursuing uh, these types of um, uh, storytelling projects? Yeah, I mean, definitely both. Uh, 
I intentionally chose a nonprofit route, which, you know, on this path, sometimes you, you really question how viable and sustainable it is. Um, because I'm on top of it being the nonprofit route, whether a lot of it is depending on grants and funding that isn't always fully there for things like marketing and social media, where if I went to go work for CBS, Viacom, Disney, there is a, a very clear ad budget that working within the social media department or the marketing department, there would be a lot there to, to help boost what I'm posting, to help, um, yeah, help with the process of getting the message out there. And yet, I definitely made the choice. Uh, I've learned a lot. And in making that choice, I found myself around people that I clicked with, people that shared a common set of values, and people that opened doors for me to, to get to where I am. And because I'm an independent contractor, that doesn't require me to be in LA at a nine to five all the time. I've been able to also take some personal trips. Um, and I have another one coming up with my sister Yesenia from January to February where uh, I'll be leaving the continent for the first time. Uh, that's going to be exciting. Where are you going to go? Um, we're arriving in Lima, Peru in a, a few weeks. And then we're heading down to Santiago, Chile, and then flying to Colombia, where my sister has her her plans based on a few telenovelas that she's watched. So I'm I'm pretty excited. There is a um, a logistic, you know, part of this where you ha- you've been charged with creating a new campaign. I was mm. wondering, like, if you can walk me through, like, how do you lay out the plan uh, to start that? Because there's so much that goes into this. I mean, and you have to really balance two things, the, you know, the, the, the right side of your brain, which is the kind of the creative mm. vision of this. But then there's the, the left part, if I have my hemispheres right, mm-hmm. where you have to really uh, think about, like you said, getting the funding of grants, thinking about, you know, is this something that is boostable given the various different types of social media amplification, if that's going to be what it needs to be done. Um, what's what's the first part of the process of, as you begin uh, one of these campaigns? Mm. For me, it always helps to narrow down the story. Uh, it's something that I learned in a photojournalism class is making sure that you're asking before you pick up the camera and start pointing it at things, that you have a clear sense of what is the story. Because then how I'm framing it, how am I starting the story, what information am I revealing up front to my audience and then slowly kind of building upon over time, uh, that then, whether it's Instagram, Instagram posts or Facebook, Twitter, helps me kind of thread together uh, a narrative that the audience gets to kind of follow along. Um, but it's, it's slow, and I guess part of it is reminding yourself that when you're starting from scratch, um, you don't have all those followers to like and share your posts. So, um, yeah, part of it is preparing to go on this long journey of growing a presence and um, none of that would be possible without in the coalition several partners and uh, I guess the manager of the project overall Francesca 
who works with a nonprofit, I believe, called the Trust for Public Land. And um, she very much knew as a community organizer what needed to be done. And I'm just there as the kind of narrative wing of the operation to help kind of lay that down. And now we're working with a, a web developer and um, I guess more of a graphics expert to, yeah, and they're working on a blog uh, to continue kind of unfolding and developing the story. Is it easy to manage so many different kind of creative people coming together? Because, I mean, I would I would imagine that sometimes, like, you have your own vision that might be in conflict with other people. Like, how, how does that, how do you kind of either grow together or kind of iron out those kind of conflicts as they happen? Yeah, uh, communication uh, is overstated but uh, underestimated. Um, I will say redirecting our attention to that common vision or that common mission um, in acting terms, uh, I focus on my objective um, because there's a lot of different tactics and you might have your own tactics or your own way that you'd like to get to the objective and I'm seeing it a different way. But if we can agree on what that objective is and acknowledge how our tactics might differ on the way there, uh, I can pivot. I can make space in what I'm doing to let you do your thing the way that you do it best. And that's more than anything, the most important part is really lean on people's strengths uh, because then it becomes a lot less of a burden or a lot less like heavy lifting to do uh, on the work side of things and more of, well, your expertise is web, so you, you can definitely take care of that. Now, how can I share video clips, interviews that we have recorded so far in a way that's conducive to the web presence that you're building. Um, but always coming back to, to those um, objectives or super objectives can help kind of clarify what is it that we're working towards and building up. And to have, again, a leader like, uh, like we do with Francesca helps significantly kind of keep on track and, and stay passionate about the work. Where, what's your kind of creative space? Like, do you, do you go somewhere to kind of like, where, how do you, where's, where's the place where the muse comes to you when you are envisioning all these, these things? Because I I think that's really important that, I mean, everyone has a unique place where they go and sometimes they don't go there enough, but I was wondering if you could maybe describe uh, what that creative realm is for you, where you, you know that once you prime yourself that um, you're, you're getting your mind ready for good things to come creatively. Hmm. Um, It was a lot easier. uh, And again, this is a, a, a bit of a rarity, but when I lived in LA, I had a park a block away from my house. And so I would make it a plan to before noon at least take a walk or or go for a jog around um and i with that i'll say that nature is where i kind of retune my instrument my mind my spirit my body and um just kind of step out of whether it's my ego or all of the different thoughts and all of the different projects and i'm allowed to just kind of reset and whether it's in nature or here in my home in 
Colton, California, um, where I'm staying with family, a deep breath is a deep breath goes a long way. Um, and if you, what it offers and what it does to your parasympathetic nervous system, as far as kind of like easing it, imagine repeating five of those, ten. That's kind of how I like to simplify it. So if I can one take a couple deep breaths and two do some of that in nature, ah, I know that I'm learning. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm learning from one of the most divine social. <laughs> again, going back to that notion of an ecosystem, there's something very simple, very clear. And something that clearly works about nature system that one, by just spending a little bit of time, can really either learn from or simply just clear your head of all the nonsense, all the noise. Like, so you were at Syracuse, but then that's mm-hmm. a long uh, trip <laughs> to get to California. Yeah. What, was the, what was the pull to California? How did you, how did you land there? Um, in some ways, it was always the goal. Um and I chose Syracuse because they had a, a semester in L.A. program. Mm-hmm. And I made sure it was my last semester. They helped me secure an internship. And I made the mistake in college, especially trying to ease into the entertainment industry, of not doing that summer internship, uh, that winter internship, that like, oh, I'm going to shadow this person for two weeks while I'm home for the holidays, networking is so important, but more than anything, or and on top of that, stepping into those environments where you get a sense of how the systems work, of, of what works and what doesn't, of how might you do it differently, and, and what is it about this boss or that supervisor or this team that you feel really, really helps it flow uh, and succeed. And um, I was lucky enough to land an internship uh, that had a fellow, a year-long fellowship program, and I applied for the fellowship, and I was able to secure that. And so that fellowship had a year's worth of salary kind of locked into it, and that really facilitated my transition to LA, where, uh, yeah, it helped me fully move there. Um, after that semester uh, in like uh, college housing and yeah that that move then made it possible to have a place to call home and to kind of bunker down for the beginning of the pandemic and slowly but surely yeah uh, grow one month at a time with the independent contractor projects that I, you know, picked up from there. I, I was going to ask you a, a follow-up on that as well, because I don't think we, we got into it. Um, tell me about the work that you do for the Smith, Smithsonian uh, Latino mm-hmm. Center. Yeah. Um, both my sister Yesenia and I were fortunate enough to apply and get accepted into uh, a program called the Young Ambassadors Program. And it essentially is a kind of college prep program that hooks you up with an internship and uh, has you exploring different museums in Washington, D.C. 
uh, for a week. And I, that experience completely shifted and changed my life. I thought that I was just going to be a filmmaker and it taught me a lot about the power of education and in particular experiential education. And so I did my best to sustain those relationships. I went back as a support staff for the program for a few years. And when the pandemic started or before it did actually, um, they were ready to take a hiatus from the program to kind of prepare to, to grow it, uh, to give it some time to rest and um, come back with a kind of 2.0 version. And to prepare, they wanted a new video uh, to kind of introduce applicants to the program. And then they had a, an idea for some programming because we wouldn't be meeting face to face. They wanted to do a kind of series to um, have alumni be able to share their experiences over the past couple of years and what they learned from the program, what they've been up to. And so that, again, started with one contract and opened up another contract. And now I'm working on a video series for middle schoolers and high schoolers um, interviewing frontline workers uh, during the pandemic and getting a sense of, you know, how they experienced COVID-19. And that project has also been eye-opening because, again, leaving that traditional entertainment route, there's a lot of doubt, especially stepping into the nonprofit. And yet I found, I found myself developing a video series that very much speaks to the things that I care about in a way that is meant and designed to reach the audiences that I care about, if that makes sense. Oh, ab absolutely. I probably have two follow-up questions mm -hmm. uh, for that, which is um, in, in the course of the interviewers, in, in the interviews um, mm -hmm. with uh, the frontline workers, what were some of the more um, interesting takeaways uh, from that? I mean, did anything surprise you? Hmm. Um, I mean, there's so much. I'm currently re-watching all of the interviews for a, a final set of videos. Um, but most of them were submissions. Like, you take your iPhone, you record your responses to the questions, and you send them my way. But I feel really fortunate to have interviewed the two teachers for the series, myself. And um, one of them teaches in Evanston, Illinois. And she teaches kindergarten. Uh, and so she's in a very progressive uh, school district where her school legitimately has a Black Lives Matter curriculum for kindergartners where they talk about racism. They, they define it. And, you know, kids get to ask questions and, and bring parts of who they are to the classroom that normally just gets set aside. And then... The, the stories and the examples and just the emotions that this teacher kind of shares about her students and, and the way that they get to open up and explore these conversations about what's been going on around them in a meaningful way and in a, you know, in a facilitated way, in a less scary way, in a way that you know that the people around you are there to support and uplift you. And yet the other teachers from Arizona where that teacher risks a fine if a student complains 
to their parents that then take it to the school board that the teacher made them feel uncomfortable or talked about things that they didn't want to talk about. And so, and, and she teaches high school. So yeah, I guess it really struck me what a different experience we're having from school district to school district, from state to state in this very polemic time in our country. We're not always sure how to talk about it. And this video series almost creates uh, a very simple format and structure to engage. And yet it's something that we're really mindful of as, as we're finishing it up that there might be certain conversations that certain schools will not get into. And uh, that's something on in the editing room that I also have to be mindful as far as how can I frame the conversation in a way that is universal and yet critical, that really opens up that space for dialogue and, and for critical thinking that, again, sometimes we're a little bit scared to do. That has got to be so tricky, you're right, because um, it can feel so heavy-handed given how passionate one side may be about mm-hmm. the, why they do what they do. Uh, how do you how do you walk that back to a more objective middle and how you frame it? That's that that has to be very challenging as a filmmaker to do that. What are what are the other ways in which you try to find a through line with all of the various different um, interviews that you have? Do, did you know that you would see like because the two examples that you just gave there was such a stark curricular mm-hmm. juxtaposition with that. Mm-hmm. Um, did, is it always a narrow question like that, or, or do you kind of have to sift through uh, the various different um, interviews and then find the through line with that? Um, yeah. Sometimes that through line is very clear, and other times I'm, I'm here stretching and pulling thoughts or punchlines together to make something a little cohesive. Uh, but I'm currently working on, on variations of the, of the video series where one is kind of more theme based. So the teachers would go together. There's uh, a, a section for like student activists and folks in higher education. There's another video uh, from the healthcare perspective. And um, on the other hand, it's more of taking it section by section, the, the interview questions were laid out in, in, in a kind of narrative structure where the first part is, you know, set the scene, introduce us to what you do, how COVID changed it. And then the second part uh, essentially opens up to, um, wow, I'm drawing a blank. But from that second into third, you're essentially painting a picture of how your community has shifted, how it's grown, how it's been impacted by um, what we call the dual pandemics of not only COVID-19, but this um, moment that we had where suddenly we're very aware of, of racial injustice in our country. And so, yeah, naturally some of these questions stir similar conversation points, but the beauty of the series is that every person has a unique perspective. And it's not often, but the nature of the series and the nature of surviving a pandemic is that the interviewees are very empathetic. They're very caring. They're very humanizing. And so even though they might see things differently from their point of view, from how they witnessed it in their work environments, at the same time, they also speak from 
yeah, from the point of view of I really care for my community. I really care for the well-being of my students. I care for the well-being of my coworkers, of my clients, of my patients. And um, that's the most important piece of, of the series is creating that space for students to tap into that empathy and to really humanize themselves and, and the people around them because the past few years have been really difficult for all of us. I think that idea of, of humanizing is, is is so important because everything can become so such an abstraction when we kind of um, see things uh, in in ways that are so reductive that oftentimes because it's so things move quickly in information spaces in that way. And yeah. I, I was wondering, like, if if you had as a I have a, I have a bunch of students who love um, talking about movies and, mm. and all that. You know, and you've you've seen you've seen things that that work. And so, when you have when when you're just watching a documentary or a movie, how do you know you're watching something that's made by a real with incredible filmmaking craftsmanship? Like, how, what what do you look for when you're watching something where you're like, ah, yes, that that that's that's usually the first signal that this is a, a quality mm. story or the, the the cinematography is is done. Like, what are the things that you see like immediately that you that's a, a tell that you're in the presence of something that's good? That 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 constantly changes um, because I'm. I guess lately I've been less concerned with what's good and like what's good for us. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, I guess a good I, distinction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and by us, I like, I, I like to clarify in the media landscape, there's the, the, the narratives that make the most money that are easiest to sell are us versus them. So Wakanda forever is, is a very good example of, oh, it's Wakanda, the Black Panther, and his Black community, and Namor, and these indigenous Mayas from underwater that are going to rise up. And it, it's alarming because I love... I grew up loving superheroes, and Black, the first Black Panther had such a, a profound impact on me in the theater, watching it with with a lot of my college peers and yet ah, I do my best to shift the narrative from us versus them to us versus the problem. And so when I acknowledge that I'm very mindful of what's good for us, um, it goes back to what we were just talking about as far as humanizing is does this story actively build a sense of empathy? And, and I've seen both incredible filmmakers fall into some of these tropes or, or traps of I'm going to tell or I'm going to use these stereotypes of a character to, to more easily and more quickly cue in the audience to, oh, this is going to be a good guy. Oh, this is a bad guy. And um, life obviously is not always that simple. <sighs> and so I, I really try to prioritize and really, again, offer spaces to to open that dialogue for is this helping us humanize people that are not like us or is this further burying us into our silos of, oh, this is us and that's them and we're right and they're wrong and we're good and they're bad because if I've learned anything over the past few years is the importance of duality 
in stepping away from the binary, if that makes sense. So this binary of good and bad forces us to pick sides. And yet the fact is that we carry all of it inside. We are good and bad. It's whether you call it yin and yang or in uh, Nawa, the word is ometeo. Duality exists in nature and we're a part of nature. I'm not sure if I answered your question, Mr. Turnbull. No, I mean, but... for sure. I mean, I think that the part <laughs> that you said at the end there about creating those various different silos, the cynical application of the type of media systems that you uh, are, are pushing away from are such that engagement is the only measure of um, mm-hmm. profitability. And yeah. so if that means keeping people in silos and maintaining the binary, if it means that they'll click longer, um, that's the only that's the only that's the only measurement that matters. And so and that's not that's not and that's completely antithetical to what you were just describing right there. So uh, I, I totally get that. That makes absolute sense. And so 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 now you have a, you're, you mentioned at the top of the interview that you have a um a third project that's more of like then the 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 one that you're you're working on uh walk me through uh, what you're envisioning for that yeah it's currently titled on the way home and it, it stems from me having left west chicago and uh about a year ago uh i believe it was the summer of 21 i, I took a road trip to west chicago and i said you know i'm on the way home i'm on the way home and that was kind of my mantra and on the way there, uh, I found myself at home. Uh, and so I, I guess I'm exploring this notion of what home is and how we can uh, create that space regardless of where we are and, and regardless of where I am. You know, I can only really speak to myself. So that, that's what I had kind of called that, that mindful media memoir. Um, where I'm reflecting on my journey, again, through these narratives of us versus them, through this landscape that part of me really wants to find an in and create my own path in this industry, and another has very little desire to to fall into this, into the politics of, of quote-unquote, making it in Hollywood. And, um, yeah, so it's looking to be... A, a transmedia project where I'm working on blog-like chapters, and yet I have drone footage, I have video footage and pictures from the past few years, and so I'm really interested in exploring a conversation of what happens when you leave home and you come back and it doesn't feel like home anymore. Um, and it, it's been an ongoing journey. I feel really blessed to have found the community that I found in Syracuse, that I found in LA, that I'm currently building in Colton, California, and, and the Inland Empire at large. Um, and one of the through lines in this project is uh, environmental racism, is uh, the climate crisis that is clearly, undeniably, a, a part of our lives, a part of our future and our present. And um, along the way, uh, I've found different communities facing very unique issues that all have the same kind of systemic underlying. And so part of what the drone footage has allowed me to capture is how clearly different this landscape might look. And yet the people here 
are all fighting for the same thing. And that might be life, air, clean air, water. Um, but it's something very human that I'm hoping to kind of capture on that slightly larger scale as I find my way home to help folks realize and, and not realize necessarily, but talk about and build a sense of community around how can we better protect, support and, and nourish our home. Do you see this as ongoing or is there like a, um, a moment where you're like, okay, I think I can have this. Um, like, do you see it like that you want it? Not, not that there's a, an ending point to that, that project, mm-hmm. but like, it, is this something that just is sustained for the foreseeable future or do you like, no, I, I think this is, could be told in X amount of years or something along those lines. I mean, I'd love, I'd love to tell it in X amount of years and, and be able to step away, but it's become very clear that this is, uh, an ongoing project. And so, uh, I'm doing my best to break it down into seasons. Um, and in the past year and a half since that road trip, I, I then backpacked from Quintana Roo, Me- Mexico, all the way to Jalisco and Michoacán, which is where uh, my family's from. And I- I'd never seen southern Mexico. So to, to kind of take the bus through that space. And then afterwards, I took a trip along the eastern coast of the U.S. where uh, I was flown out to speak at a convention, very much bringing this conversation of, of shifting that us versus them to us versus the problem in, in a room full of college filmmakers and, and alumni of this program that are now either in the industry or tangentially working on their own stories. And so to bring this conversation of what does it look like to challenge those dominant narratives that have been normalized in history books that have been normalized in Hollywood for decades, if not centuries now, how can we really focus on disrupting those dominant narratives and coming forward with an authentic truth uh, or what some researchers call a, a counter story? Now, the, the, the concept of like maybe a, a counter story it's got to be so difficult because maybe that that is something that is um, contrary to various systems that need the status quo mm-hmm. to remain. What is what do you find as like maybe the the best kind of angle to kind of chisel away at that with the the narratives that you come up with? Mm, yeah, I mean, decentralizing is the most important part. If we acknowledge that. Uh, the dominant story has uplifted and normalized one way of life that is very much like a middle-class America. Uh, For the longest time, it it has been written by very wealthy, property-owning, again, middle-class, if not higher, white men. What does it look like to decentralize and tell that same American story from the perspective of mm, a trans, black, young teenager who's going through their version of the American story. Uh, what does it look like to, to have that character in conversation with uh, a, a Hasidic Jew? What does it look like to have that person in conversation with, you know? And that's kind of where I'm most invested and interested. And again, really fortunate that I've had these opportunities with the Smithsonian work and, and with some of these nonprofit coalitions to really focus the 
the spotlight on various members of the community. Um, and it's something I'm, I'm working with uh, here in, in Colton tomorrow. Uh, I'll be taking my drone and joining a toxic tour where some local grassroots organizers are essentially taking a tour through what is one of the densest uh, collection of like Amazon warehouses and several other corporations that essentially use the Inland Empire as the country's shopping cart. Or before it gets to your door, it's likely going to go through the Inland Empire. And that's semi-trucks, that's warehouses, that's... San Bernardino County has the dirtiest air in all of the United States. And so what I can do, and again, disrupting or, or challenging, I'm not saying, I'm not telling you how to live your life, first of all. This goes to everybody. I'm not here to judge or place any judgment on individual actions because this isn't about individual actions. The work is simply here to acknowledge that because Amazon has so much power, because these corporations have so much power, they should be leveraging it to, to greenify their systems and not claim that it's going to happen by 2035. The, there are, are, are real people affected by the, the very clear impact of these corporations growing in an unsustainable rate that if we can focus on capturing, documenting, and sharing stories of people that are currently facing the consequences, the goal is to kind of shuffle these videos and these narratives through various policy policymakers to help them really understand what it is that we're up against and to consider the stories of their constituents and not just you know the that bottom line or that promise from these corporations that more jobs will come when a lot of the times the jobs that come from warehouses are not only not the best paying but they're not designed for you to keep it for five to ten years. They have no problem shuffling uh, an employee out and replacing them with someone new. So, <laughs> again, to just recap that answer, decentralize and, and really leverage the voice of people that have been marginalized uh, and excluded. And, and what I love about stories from the margins is that if you are typing in Microsoft Word, the margins are that empty blank space where there is no text there. They've been excluded from that dominant story. And so, yeah, I feel very passionate about pointing the camera in those spaces and, and not only pointing it, but co-creating a story where they're just as involved in what the outcome looks like as I am as the person that's bringing that technology to capture and document. I think their fourth project, I think you just hinted about at this, is the the one project that's about to happen. You said you're going to spend a week mm -hmm. up north. Um, mm -hmm. Was that is that an independent project or is that one that was commissioned uh, by the Smithsonian that you're going to be working on? And, and what 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 are your uh, what are you going to be finding with that? Yeah, um, so that's a part of uh, the life of an independent contractor, uh, and really something I learned from some peers in Los Angeles is you might have a job or a steady paycheck, but you're always applying to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Uh, and <laughs> doing your best, you know, not to be afraid of overlap uh, or to tell one chapter, I'm ready to close this one and open up a new one. But uh, in applying and applying and applying, 
Um, I got a, a small grant uh, through this nonprofit called the Blue Sky Center um, that essentially uses the arts and um, they have like their pillars or the things that they're trying to touch on or acknowledge and address in this very rural community uh, north of Los Angeles. Um, but it's a three-week uh, residency. And that first week is integrating into the community, visiting the public schools, uh, which is just 1K through 8 and then 9 through 12. And um, after talking with teachers and students, and then there's like a, a, a gardening group uh, with a bunch of local mothers uh, trying to find an intergenerational project that can be created where, like we were just talking about, we can address uh, the dominant narratives that exist and that often paint these communities as if they have nothing meaningful to, contrib to contribute to the country at large, to the great American empire, and yet just poke some holes where needed and then create the opportunity for participants to shape their own story. And, and more than anything, it's an opportunity for me to, to refine my curriculum and do so in a way that's mindful of rural communities that don't always have the same equitable access to fast speed internet, to technology in general. And um, how can I, in working through it, because a lot of the community is Latino, creating a bilingual program that I would then be able to you know, take it to another community for three weeks and then take it to another community for three weeks and, and continue my work again on, on the way home of bringing this conversation of, of mindful media and ah, bringing that deep breath to kind of slow things down and give folks more than anything the opportunity in acknowledging, well, this is how fear and anxiety spreads through our media landscape. Let me take a deep breath. Uh, maybe a few more and then look for the ways in which I can use media tools to spread love instead of fear. And that's, yeah, that's essentially the work. And everybody would have their own medium. Uh, I feel as though a lot of what you do here with this podcast is your best to spread love by bringing alums together and, you know, sharing different perspectives of what love can look like or what one's, you know, career and, and work goals can can bring to fruition to give, you know, uh, uh, the next generation an example of what that can look like. I think that's <laughs> this is why we may be kindred spirits to that extent. Mm -hmm. Because, like, that's, that was always kind of an, uh, an underpinning goal, which is not seeing it but hearing it of what you can do and what you can be. And you're doing that also in this project, which is, oh, we, we made this thing. And the idea, what I love about uh, the the prospect of this is that not only is it bringing people together, but it's bringing people together, as you said, intergenerationally. I think mm -hmm. that that is going to be uh, mm -hmm. a, a real beauty of the of binding the community together because I think we do see things as like okay boomer you know the, all that those mm -hmm, kind of like false mm -hmm. you know, silos as you said before yeah. uh, and all that now we've made this thing together as a community and really bring it back to 
peak humanities when we are working together for goals that are um, attainable, sustainable, and, 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 and then have that type of iterative uh, power, uh, mm. as you said. So, wow, this has been uh, so great. And uh, to end the, this, this awesome uh, interview today, I was wondering if you could share tips of success, tips for success for current Wildcats. This is kind of a, a two-parter, uh, but I first want to acknowledge that you have people in your classrooms, be them peers or teachers, that are advocates for your success. Uh, do your best not to discount and, and to appreciate all of those moments that you have with them uh, because they're fleeting, you know? Um, but on one hand, disrupt the narrative of success and just know that your parents' story is one and, and it's valid. And I wish I could have done a better job to really appreciate them for the work that they do. Um, and yet know that your success is going to look different. Uh, so in some ways, don't be afraid to, to step away and, and not be mindful not to just step away for the sake of stepping away from what your parents want. But create opportunities for you to listen to what is it that you really want? What does success look like for you? And know that a failure, a misstep, a mistake, you falling will only help you strengthen your perception and your understanding of what success looks like. And even though sometimes, you know, a, a reaction from somebody on the outside might be, uh, it, might feel like bullying sometimes. It might feel like, oh, you're not worth anything. Da, da, da. There's variations of that spectrum, but know that family, our parents don't like to see us fail. They often want us to succeed, but only you will ever really know what that looks like. So please don't don't be afraid to 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 carve your own path. And again, lean on those supports as best as you can and and when you can, to just remind them that it's going to look a little different, but it'll be significantly easier if you don't ostracize and push people away. Uh, and you look for ways to, to give thanks when, when it's due and where it's due. And re remember that it takes a village. Success towards anything takes a village. And you have this <laughs> wonderful village of wildcats here that are, uh, yeah, excited to see you succeed, ah, myself cool. included. Thank you so much. This has been such a great interview, and I'm very excited to see all your future projects, and we will make sure that we will always uh, support and connect to it uh, when you uh, when you have it all out there. So thank you so much, Josue. Thank, oh, thank you so much, Mr. Turnbauer. I appreciate it. I look forward to, to bringing something to the community soon. Thanks for listening. Do us a favor and spread the word about We Go Places by sharing our interviews with other Wildcats. If you want to search past episodes or stay current, subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere where you can get your podcasts. Just search We Go Places. You can follow We Go Places on our Facebook page as well, and also Twitter at We Go Places Podcast. And if you know a former Wildcat who would be a great guest, send me a direct message on Facebook, Twitter, or by school email at bturnbow at d94.org.